The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, and you're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnightly roundup of the big releases in cinemas and on streaming, with our expert voices here in the studio. So lean back, melt into your seats near some aircon and an icy glass of whatever you please, and hear all about the latest films to grace or affront our screens. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and I have the extreme pleasure to be joined by a host of hosts today with Emma Marchant. Hello. Ash Capaldi. Hello. Yazi Osman. Hello. As well as first-timers Hugo Van Zeller. Hello. And Alfie Hudson. Hi. The theatre releases are a bit uh, thin on the ground at the moment, uh, but luckily we can lean on the streaming side of things to provide a plethora of entertainment from mythical monsters to 19th century romance. First up, however, we have the much-anticipated cinematic adaptation of Delia Owens' acclaimed page-turner Where the Crawdads Sing. Then we have the beguiling voices of Carl Urban, Dan Stevens, and Jared Harris leading us through an animated adventure to make history when a young girl stows away with monster hunters in The Sea Beast. The lovable John Cho plays a single father who takes teenage daughter on the road trip after a fatal diagnosis in Hannah Marx's Don't Make Me Go. Off the heels of the delightful Austin adaptations Love and Friendship and Emma, we join Dakota Johnson as Anne Elliot, a lady who's forced to reconsider her choice not to marry a man of humble origins when she is her second chance at love in Persuasion. Uh, we take another step back into 19th century England with Russell Crowe and Ray Winston in Prizefighter, telling the story of ambitious boxer Jem Belcher. And finally, Netflix just cannot leave the CIA alone in yet another globe-trotting actioner, this time starring Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans as skilled CIA operatives going tete-a-tete. Tete. So let's get going and join a southern belle trapped in the marshes of a murder mystery. I have, like you, heard the tall tales told about the Marsh Girl. An abandoned child. I had a family once. They called me Kaya. A little girl surviving in the marsh on her own, reviled and shunned. Hello, Miss Kaya. I hear y'all by muscles. I feel so invisible. I wonder if I'm here at all. You are. I think you're gorgeous. I want to get to know you better. Daisy Edgar Jones, who you may know as Marianne from BBC series Normal People, plays. Kaya Clark, a reclusive young woman known to locals as the Marsh Girl, who is suddenly suspected in the murder of former partner and town hotshot Chase Andrews. But can Kaya clear her name? Emma, there's always, there always seems to be a steady flow of female-led mysteries based on page-turners. Did Crawdads sing on screen in this adaptation? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it didn't, I'm afraid. Those quarters did not sing. They kind of snored, I would say. Okay. Um, we were talking about this because obviously a lot, of, I think two of us in, in the studio have read the book. I read the book when it came out, but I think the book perhaps at the time gathered a momentum which in retrospect it probably didn't necessarily deserve. I mean, the book is no sort of literally ma- literary masterpiece. It is a an atmospheric page turn, let's say, I think benefited coming out 
particularly in the UK, around the time that lockdown started. So, you know, it was just one of those word of mouth. We were all stuck at home. Let's read something that doesn't require too much mental capacity. So it comes to the screen with this. And I think, obviously, the, the production rights were snapped up by Fox 2000 and by Reese Witherspoon because she put it on her book club. And it's this, you know, sort of obviously very sudden story. But I feel that probably in the two years since the book was really at its peak to now it coming out on, on screen, you've A, lost the audience who'd be that interested to see what their book turns into, and B, the book's lost some momentum anyway. Um, it is a very... It, the, the book tells more of a split narrative because obviously it starts... The, the body is discovered at the, at the start and then... In the book, you have this kind of split narrative of Kaya growing up being abandoned by her whole family. I mean, she is literally abandoned one by one by her mother, by her sisters and brothers, and then eventually by her alcoholic and abusive father. They all leave and she's left her at around the age of eight to bring herself up, which is, to be honest, a stretch even in the book. And in the film, is even more so because at no point does she look... She looks perfectly turned out at all points. Beautifully washed hair, a great wardrobe. Um, and then... But they, they, they frame it this way, and David Strathane, who's probably one of the best things in this... I mean, it's it's hard to find a you know it's it's hard to sort of ever knock Davis Savan. He is a really fine actor, but in this he's just doing kind of his best Gregory Peck impersonation because he's the lawyer, even to the point he's wearing like a white seersucker suit for the court scenes. And she is arrested at the beginning, and then he is sort of talking to her and she's filling him in with the story and they flashback. So it's all, the whole film is really told in a flashback, which doesn't lend a particular urgency to it. It's it's over two hours long as well, which is possibly a little long. Well. Given, I mean, when when you were reading the book, did you kind of, did it keep you guessing? Do you think this film likewise would keep people guessing? No, I think for me, the book and probably the film as well, the more interesting aspect of it is actually her as a, as a child growing up in the marshes when she's called the marsh girl and how she sort of survives, you know, a sense of survival because she also then, because she's an incredibly talented uh Illustrator and 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 but but you know basically she's she's a botanist she's she's a bot she's an untrained botanist and she the whole idea of this is she has this love story with this guy Tate who she meets as a small child but her father keeps them apart but then he comes back to find her and they have this you know awesome beautiful perfect teenage romance and then both in the book and the film it's not terribly well explained he goes off to college and just doesn't contact her <laughs> which really is bizarre he never comes back even though they are clearly the loves of each other's lives it it they. they this had to me, it felt a bit like a sort of fancy Hallmark film. It really did. Daisy Edgar-Jones is really good in this. And I do think that following on from Normal People, she made Fresh, obviously, with Sebastian Stan, which we reviewed on this, which is a pretty punchy and daring film to make, I think, as you're starting out. This is not punchy and daring, but it carries on her trajectory into, I think, one of our most promising actresses because she is quite luminous, luminous on screen it's not her fault that she's saddled with the two male leads who both look honestly like they've just been taken out of a hallmark christmas movie i almost found them interchangeable they there's very little chemistry if i saw one more there's about a million shots of her standing there in her marsh house again beautifully you know i mean beautifully kept up considering she's a 17 year old with no money um if i see one more shot of her hearing a boat coming and then turning around to see is it the goodie is it the baddie is it her brother is it who could it be coming there must have been 15 of them and you're like oh for heaven's sake just you know okay. get a bit more and i've got one more thing to say it's set in north carolina very much so. It's all they they discuss Carolina a lot. Obviously, Taylor Swift has written this song called Carolina. It's about the Carolina marshes. They have filmed this all in Louisiana, and it could not more look more like the bayous. And that just, I think, it takes away that whole sense of place. Um, do you? I mean, you kind of touched on uh, it's it's uh, lacking motivations and stuff. But does the film 
kind of rely at all on its luridness or its like big dark themes? Does, does everything kind of come together? Well, no, I mean, if you're going to film a sort of thriller in the swamps, then maybe let it be Paperboy. The Paperboy, that was, I mean, talking of lurid. It's not really lurid. This is a very, I hasten to add, this is a very different film. Very different book, very different film. Um, I realised as I went into it, I'd actually forgotten the ending of the book. That's how much impact it had on me, I would say. Because like you say, it is a murder mystery, but it's also a, a, an atmospheric growing, um, you know, coming of age tale. And it's a, 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 and it's a love story as well and it's also the story of this woman's talent being discovered the whole thing i didn't ever really get any sense of threat or concern or thrill if anyone describes it as a thriller you just can't she daisy edgar jones as kaya is kind of positioned as this you know she's she's like sort of animal in the first scene when she's put into prison in which she's in jail this the jailhouse cat of course instantly comes through it's like everything from outside is drawn to her because she's just this sort of fabled creature but as i say her performance is is pretty good she's it's pretty good she's pretty luminous but she's stuck in a really pedestrian film Okay, so good performances, maybe a lack of tension now and then. Um, Where the Crawdads Sing is a certificate 15, and it's screening at all three Cambridge cinemas, so you can see for yourselves. Now on to the high seas for some high adventure. For a sailor, a map tells of seas to be explored. Of great reward and great peril. But it's where the map ends that the true adventure begins. It's below us. A hunting ship ain't no place for a kid. I like this kid. Them pictures of me books come to life. When the young and imaginative Maisie Brumble escapes the royal orphanage, she stows away and on a ship dedicated to hunting the great monsters of the deep. But when the but when she interrupts the hunt, she and the first mate, voiced by Carl Urban, discover more about the beast than they bargained for. And who is the real monster in the end? Yazi, um, when I heard Netflix were making uh, an original animated film, I kind of balked, given the quality of their live-action fare from time to time. Um, was this a made-for-TV animation, or did it deserve a big screen, do you think? I think it's fine on, on, on the little screen, but actually I have to give a shout-out to Netflix because some of my favourite films of last year were their animated films. Um, the Mitchells vs. The Machines I thought was a really strong Netflix animation. Um, you had Vivo, which I thought was really vibrant, and I think that Seabees continues this. It's a very dynamic film. I thought it was very enjoyable. I thought it was very charming. I mean, I love The Boys, and I know we've got other fans of The Boys around the table. Uh, so hearing Carl Urban in this kind of father figure role i actually really really enjoyed and um i think i think it, it, it you have to remember who this is for and i think as a kid watching this there's a lot to admire it's got it's got a very you know good storyline to me it's very um well the animation is actually quite stunning you know when you get into the bits that are underwater when you've got the sea beast itself i think there's a lot to really admire there and i was quite drawn to to the main characters and 
we can get into this later. I am going to be that person. But it also has a great critique of imperialism, which, of course, I was going to jump at. So it, to me, it was a winner. Um, I, I do agree that the uh, the check your check your sources message was is, is a good one too, um, especially in a children's film. Um, Hugo, uh, I'm not I'm not convinced on having children take kind of front and center in these uh, in, in in action stories. Um, do you think the character of Maisie uh, distracted from what could have been a good old fashioned high sea adventure? Uh, I I don't believe so. No, I think she really captures the. Uh the sort of the young heroine aspect of, of the film and she's um really her voice the, the voice acting itself grated on me a little bit but at the same time i think throughout the film i think she she is kind of the the driving force in terms of uh, changing the mindset of the the uh, the sort of imperious imperious nature where they they were all about um uh, they they couldn't the the sea monsters uh, and the the imperial uh, they were all kind of hunting the yeah. the the like the red bluster and, and the sea beasts. Whereas throughout the film, I think gradually that that mindset shifts, and it's uh, it's because of Maisie's character that I think um, uh, that that mindset shifts. And um, it with regards to kind of how the film develops, it it's not the sort of it's not completely harmonious like the the relationship between uh the the monsters and uh the the hunters but at the, at the same time i think Maisie uh, throughout the film it, it's i don't think i think without her character it, it you don't really get that mm. um that that transition and i think it's because she identifies with the with the red the, the red bluster the the sea beast more that i, that I think you achieve um, that 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 transition. Okay. Well, speaking of um, the the other characters, um, Carl Urban, Jared Harris, Dan Stevens, uh, as swashbucklers in a live action film might be uh, the highest grossing film ever if it was ever made. Ash, do you think they they carried the film on their voices? I recognised Jared Harris. Did not recognise Carl Urban. I was placing him as a Hemsworth of some kind, so that was a surprise, um, and that kept me more interested throughout actually it's the kind of thing where only the adults i think bother to take note of the voice acting i agree the lead girl was a little grating but she was so adventurous and cute and different from any other kind of disney-ish type young girl character we have so i don't think that's going to take away from the majority of people that see this film I enjoyed it for the the three or four parters I saw it for because you're going to have to keep five and six-year-olds engaged and by the time I was getting a little bit bored, we land on this lovely other location that I don't want to spoil with some other creatures and that got me excited again and then we had to leave that location and that got me interested again. So it was more... The, the, the pacing fit better for me than some kids' films. I don't understand how people 30 years younger than me sit through most of them. This was pretty good. Well, I, I was going to say, Alfie, um, I, I have to admit, while I was watching it, I found myself feeling this is still going. Uh, it's a two... It's a while two hours. Do you think younger audiences will be engaged throughout that whole runtime? Um, well, I watched this film with my 10-year-old brother and my grandma, and both of them were bored throughout most of the second half of the film so yeah i think it should have ended a lot sooner than it did i think two hours is way too long okay um i, I got I, some of you are saying it, it picked up whenever we kind of have a revelation kind of a quarter to a third to the film um i 
I felt this kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean meets uh, How to Train Your Dragon with a little bit of King Kong. Does it kind of bring everything together to feel like a next step in storytelling, or was it more of a rehash, maybe? It... It was a rehash for me. I re- it really didn't grab. It didn't grab me in the first kind of fifteen twenty minutes. With the first, it, it, it sort of drops you straight into the action, if you like. And it did. And once it hadn't grabbed me, even though I, it picked up a bit, like you say, the animation. I mean, obviously Netflix have invested into this, and it comes from the guys behind Moana and Big Hero Six, and you can see, you can see some of the, some of that in there. So the creativity of the animation was was okay, but the story itself, and yeah, you'll see, I was, you know, I'm a huge boys fan. I was severely disappointed that I wasn't more excited with Carl's Carl's Cockney accent. I, I thought the story was quite. I thought the story was fine. I mean, if you look at kids' films, you know, these kinds of animations, I actually thought there was quite some depth in the storytelling. Maybe that's because I was looking at it with this kind of angle. I was like, oh, historiography. Oh, that's great. I love to hear this, which obviously a kid might not pick up on. But I, I, I thought there was a depth to the storytelling. And the comparison to, you know, How to Train Your Dragon... I see that. However, as a kid, I watched both Ants and A Bug Life, A Bug's Life, and they're the same film, and I still enjoyed both of them. I, I don't think you can make these comparisons and say that's a critique on the film. There was some real depth, and I have. We all know A Bug's Life was much better than Ants. Well, though, yes, I know. Pixar. But as, so, a, a, as a kid, I, as a kid, I watched both of them, and I enjoyed both of them. So, but <laughs> I digress. Um, but this this film, I just think it was. It was it was a dynamic. It, it was engaging. I actually I know that the um, I, I, I'm just going to look at, at Zaris Angel Hattor who plays Maisie. I know that she's getting a bit of critique for her her voice acting, but I thought her character was very well written. I I was quite involved in their relationship. You know, Jacob and Maisie. It, it got it, it. I did well up a little bit. I, you know, I I think it is. For what it is, it's a Netflix animation. If you've got something on a Saturday afternoon, just watch it. I think you might enjoy it. Well, as a Netflix animation, did anyone feel... It's a it's the a co-director of Moana and Big Hero 6, speaking of Disney and Pixar. Um, did anyone feel like this was maybe kind of like an off-Broadway production, like maybe something that Disney kind of passed over and then Netflix picked up? I mean, potentially, you do... Yeah, you can you can get that vibe, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it. <laughs> I'm loving that off-Broadway direction. I like... I, yeah, I, I totally feel that. I don't think... I think it was too long. I, I, it's hard for me to say, because obviously my kids are now older, so I, I, I used to sort of have more of a feeling for what kids, or particularly young kids, would, would, would you know, what would speak to them and what didn't. And I had to, you know... We went to go and see a lot of films together as a family. They're obviously now not interested in it, so I see films like this for the show. And it's hard for me to think, but I think it was too long and and a little too I, I, it wasn't maybe funny enough mm. it, there weren't enough jokes maybe you need some zingy lines did anyone else laugh was everyone kind of picked up yeah uh, no not really don't um, remember me laughing though I think like the dialogue I can't really remember a lot of lines or any jokes really I can't don't think I laughed Maisie had some quick whips that I enjoyed and I did laugh. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the person that will big up this film. I, I thought there was... I didn't think the script was that bad. I think they did it quite well. And to be fair, it is doing very, very well on Netflix, actually. I think it's still sitting at number two and it's been out for a couple of weeks nearly. So clearly people are watching it. Do we want to see more of this ilk from Netflix? I say so. Yes. Yes, I think so too. Cool. Well, uh, mixed opinions, but it sounds like a, it's, it's definitely worth a go. Um, the Sea Beast is a certificate PG, and it's available on Netflix. Now for another trip of inner discovery, this time on land. 
Wally, what are you doing up there? I tried to text you, but, but my phone died. Your phone died? That's it? I didn't mean to scare you, I swear. Come down here right now. Not you. You stay up there. There's one option, but the operation is risky. So when are you having surgery? I don't know. How do I tell my daughter? I'm kind of it for her. So how are you? Let's go somewhere. We've never taken a real road trip together. No way. It's the rest of summer. We're going. I will be miserable the entire time. I will teach you to drive on the way. If you have a good attitude for real, I'll let you get behind the wheel. If you promise to never do that again, ever. I will never, ever do it again. Get out. All right, good. Don't Make Me Go centers on the relationship between Father Max, played by John Cho, and teenage daughter Wally, played by Mia Isaac, as they venture across the States. What Wally doesn't know, however, is that Max has been diagnosed with only one year to live and, it's actually, and is actually taking her to meet her estranged mother who can care for her after Max is gone. Hugo, the script is written by um, This Is Us alum Vera Herbert. Uh, was it perhaps uh, overly melodramatic at all, as in that which that show has kind of been accused of? Uh, I don't think so, no. Uh, so, yeah, like you say, the, the script by Vera Herbert, I, th- I had it written down that it was on uh, the 2012 blacklist of the best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. And uh, it's, it's gone, through, gone through a couple of drafts. It was originally titled uh, Story About My Father, and then um, Amazon picked it up in uh, 2021 uh, to develop the film. Um, it doesn't really... Uh, the, I didn't get the impression that it was melodramatic um it's um i mean for me it was the film of the week i really i really enjoyed it um particularly the the central performances uh uh from uh, john cho and uh, mia isaac i thought their their chemistry was really good uh, and the way that their relationship develops uh, i thought that was re- uh, really well done as well um it seemed like for i think because i think john cho really captured the um the, the sort of uh, the, the premise for his character where he was kind of dealing with um a lot of uh, re- responsibility uh, following his kind of his diagnosis, his terminal diagnosis, um, and I think he was obviously dealing with a lot of that and uh, the fear because uh, me the fear because Mia does not have um, someone else who could take care of her, which is um, why they then go on this road trip, um, and. Uh, it, it was subtle his performance as well mm. it was um you really see his character develop you see mia's character uh, uh wally develop as well um because she's quite the kind of standard uh, imi- there's a level of immaturity there but she and she has quite a negative view of her father to begin with and then it kind of their relationship kind of improves uh, as as the film goes on um and um yeah, I think I, I look, John Cho. I think has only recently gone into sort of more dra- dramatic roles after Searching and um, mm. and, and this example uh, with uh, Don't Make Me Go. And I, I look forward to seeing him more in, in leading roles. I think he I think he was definitely the highlight. Well, as, yeah, Emma, as we said, uh, it, it is a road movie, um, which means you have to be invested in these characters. Were you invested in uh, Max and Wally? I was completely invested in them. I think that Mia Isaac, who I have... I mean, John Cho, obviously, I know, well, but for me, he's probably Harold Kumar, to be honest, that's how old I am, yeah, but also, no, obviously, well-known for Star Trek. Um, and he was just, as a single father... Because 
this is perhaps, you know, it, it's a relative trope, isn't it? From Paper Moon onwards, you've got father-daughter road trips, but, you know, obviously with the drama being thrown in with his diagnosis. But Mir Isaac, who I haven't seen in anything, I just thought captured Wally perfectly as a teenager and being now a parent of teenagers, she's just, she was bang on with, you know, with, with this relationship that she's having, which is really a terror, because at, at the beginning, she, she this, this guy kisses her when she's in goal and she's so overcome, she fails and it's gorgeous and um but he is really not a nice guy he is he's sort of he's, he's not a figure they haven't become official and john cho just can't you know max can't get his head around this but it, it, she, she does that thing she's sassy she's got there's an excellent performance as well by stefania levy owen as her sister um who's the little girl from krampus she's a sister in krampus that's a shout out for ashley and she was really good too and they just i don't know i just thought it captured that spirit it's a it's shot in a really photogenic part of the states as well because they go from california and he's taking her to louise Louisiana, so they go through New Mexico and then Texas, and they, yeah. they do some fun stuff with the titles for that to show where they're going. They do some fun. They have some fun scenes. She, there's this awesome scene where she kind of flirts and, and ends up seeing a, a, a beautiful meteor shower in the middle of Texas with the guy who's yeah. Te- I think it's, I think it's in a Texas one Texas, where they yeah. Yeah. yeah with the guy from the from the motel. It, it just in a week of slight let's say fairly slight slight releases but maybe in a week we're going to talk about The Grey Man at the end of this show for example the most expensive film Netflix have ever put on and this to me like Hugo it was a film of the week and it's again an example we've talked about this before on the show I think Amazon Prime is doing much more interesting stuff with their originals than Netflix is I think it's picking up some really and, and this is a this was an unexpected gem for me um, it reminded me of that film that Kate that we that it reminded me of another, another Amazon Prime which had um, Paul Bettany in Uncle Frank. It's it, 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 again. So it, it, these it, I don't know. They 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 just seem to do. They take a good small story good and they do a good job with it. Um, yes. The film opens up with the statement that we're not going to like the ending. Um, without getting into spoilers. I think a lot of people will be put off by the ending. Do you think the film is kind of trying to have its cake and eat it? No, I don't. I really enjoyed this film. And um, we discussed this before we went on air. And I I think I'm the only person that quite openly said, I saw there is a twist. I saw the twist coming from the beginning. I knew what was going to happen, but it did not take anything away from the film because actually what I was invested in was the relationship between John uh, John Cho and, and Mia Isaac and, and their relationship was very well written, very well developed. It's very easy to get this kind of film with some of the tropes that Emma said wrong. You know, road trip, father, you know, terminally ill, bonding moments. It's very easy to just be lazy yeah. with that storytelling. This film is not lazy with it. I thought it was developed really well. There's a moment where they, I'm not going to give a spoiler, but they meet another character played by Jen Van Epps and you think that's going to be a, a there's going to be some resolution there. The film does not make it a res- resolution moment. It actually, you know, it actually brings up the challenges of the, the relationships and the, fa- the drama behind this family dynamic. And I think it, it, it confronts it in a really intelligent, well-thought way. So, yes, you're warned at the beginning it's not going to be something that you might enjoy, but as a film, I think that just... It's to its credit. It's very well written. 
And it actually, Lorcan, you surprised me when you said this came from a This Is Us Alan because I, I mean, This Is Us I know is beloved by many people. And I, I did watch. No, no, I watched the first three seasons and really liked it. And then I just was like, I'm a bit sick of being emotionally manipulated <laughs> every week, so I'm done. But I think this really steer clears of this. It really steers clear of that. I think there, there is. It's not melodramatic. It is fresh and it is real. And these characters feel like people you would really meet and really want to hang out with. He also has Max has a delightful relationship with Annie which we haven't talked about, who is his girlfriend. And I think they have a really refreshingly written and um, realistic relationship for a, you know, for a single father of a teenager. Don't, though, like I did, get excited if you see Jermaine Clement's name in no. there because he's not in it for very long. Although he does play entertainingly against type. <laughs> I was going to say, everyone's favourite Jermaine Clement, the fact we haven't mentioned him up until now, is probably gives you a hint as to his, his <laughs> role in the real film. Um, I completely agree with pretty much what all of you are saying. Um, I, th- I think it's, like Emma said, it's a very, it's a good streaming choice because it's a very comfortable, sit back, watch it, become emotionally engaged. But could the film have done more to make it more cinematic or is there anything it could have done to add more to the experience, do we think? No, I, I think I quite like that it's understated. I think that just adds to its charm, to be honest. Um, I mean, it's very well suited to something you can watch at home. I don't think it needs to be a big cinematic release, but um, it, it's like what you said, it was an undiscovered gem. And I, I think I think that's just part of its appeal, to be honest. I would not have been furious had I paid money to go and see it in the cinema. No, I wouldn't. Because I do think they do some beauty... I, I do think they use their locations really well as well. For a relatively low-budget film, I think the locations were used inventively and um, attractively. Cool. Well, everyone's a yes on Don't Make Me Go. Uh, take them while you can get them. Um, it's a certificate 18, though good, the good Lord only knows why. Um, and it's streaming on Prime Video. Cambridge 105 Radio. Wednesday evenings on Cambridge 105 Radio is when we champion the Cambridge music scene. Tom Lumley of the band Tom Lumley and the Bravely Avon. There'd always be 12 people from other bands going down to each other's gigs. And it wasn't just be part of Hollow Stars Classic Rock or Searching Grey's Indie. These people then started going to watch all of our gigs, singing the words to each other's songs and making it a good atmosphere. You could see it in the fact that it went from struggling to sell enough tickets for the corner house to selling out J2. New Music Generator with Tim Willett, Wednesday at 7 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen live on Radio Player. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to full fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life 
This weekend, Cherry Hinton Hall comes alive as thousands visit for the Cambridge Folk Festival. It's one of Europe's premier music events, one of the longest running and most famous folk festivals in the world. Cambridge 105 Radio will be backstage throughout the festival and you can join us too. We'll have artist interviews, live performances and some of the best in folk music. The Cambridge Folk Festival starts Thursday on the home of Cambridge Music, Cambridge 105 Radio. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. And we're halfway through our fortnightly coverage of all films great and small here in the studio. We're uh, on to our fourth film now uh, and let's see what's happening in Austin Town. I almost got married once. There were no two souls more in rhythm than Wentworth and I. And I was persuaded by my family to give him up. My father. Exquisite jawline. He's never met a reflective surface he didn't like. And my sisters. I'm just too kind, Anne. That's my problem. I give all of my attention to others and then I suffer for it. Where are your children? How should I know? been a far happier woman in keeping him than I have been in giving him up. It's been seven years. Eight. Darling, at some point, you have to move on. Dakota Johnson takes up the mantle of Anne Elliot in the new Netflix adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion, where the ingenue must battle with romance versus expectation alongside co-stars Richard E. Grant, Henry Golding, and relative newcomer Cosmo Jarvis as the charismatic but emotionally guarded Frederick Wentworth. Ash, were you persuaded by this period piece? Um, I'm one of those annoying people, a bit like scientists and engineers who watch fantasy and sci-fi and point out everything that's wrong. So having read all this and studied it at A-level, um, it's not right, it's not quite right. Um, <laughs> so Anne Elliot is one of Jane Austen's most famous heroines, and this is a writer that's famous for writing strong heroines. Um, and we have Dakota Johnson in that lead role, um, who's very sweetly smiling her way through pursed lips and a locked jaw that reminded me a little too much of Kira Knightley for my taste. Um, just kind of flip-flopping through her life, pining after a not very desirable or alluring man um, was the main thing that's not quite right. And then on the other side of the coin, where we should have had this melodramatic pining because she's so deeply in love with him that didn't come off, when they are back in love again, you're supposed to feel the crackle and the fact they've been separated for years and years and this is their one true person on the planet and they've fought through all this hoo-ha and they can now get back together again. And neither of them seemed really up for it or into each other. Um, so those are the two things that they had as jobs to do in this film, and I would say they failed them both. Oh dear. Alfie, um, Dakota Johnson, uh, an American playing a very famous British character, Did she? do you feel she stuck out like a sore thumb, especially when she's playing opposite someone like Richard E. Grant, who's very flagrantly British? Um, well, I mean, are you talking about the main protagonist? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of... Well, mo most of the things she does in the film is look at the camera awkwardly, and that's supposed to be funny for some reason, but I don't really see the joke there. Um, and it's like, she's not really... 40% of her dialogue isn't really talking to anyone, it's talking to the viewers, because mm. I assume the filmmakers didn't really know how to translate um, what, what I presume was written in the book into film. So they had to literally talk to the audience. So I feel like it's hard to judge how 
like our interactions with other、mm. characters, if she's mostly interacting with us, or a love interest who you mentioned didn't really have a lot of charisma, wasn't really likable, and they didn't seem to be, didn't really have a lot of chemistry. So I don't know. Emma,、um, when I was a kid, I would go to my granny's house with all my with my mum and all her aunts, and they would always put on a Jane Austen in the background, and they wouldn't pay attention to it because they know the story inside and out. It's really just eye candy. Did this film have enough eye candy for those who are just super familiar with the story? No, I, okay, I'm pretty familiar with lots of Jane Austen. I'm, I wasn't familiar with Persuasion at all. So first of all, what on earth are you doing? And I know Ash and I have different feelings about this. What on earth are you doing? Casting the luminously attractive Dakota Johnson, regardless of her, of her acting, as you know, who's meant to be this sort of spinster sister who's outshone by her two other sisters. Clearly, she wasn't. So that made no sense to me whatsoever. She's holding a rabbit at the beginning, which I think is meant to be quirky. It's a conscious choice that they've done this kind of flea bag thing. But no, if you want eye candy in Jane Austen, I would. Beg you to watch the recent production of Emma with Anya Taylor Joy, which did Austin, which freshened it up with this kind of pastel colour palette and freshened it, modernised it in ways, in ways that this tries to modernise it, but it modernises it in the most bizarre ways by throwing in lines like "Oh, he's my ex-boyfriend" and rating men out of ten or whatever. So the script is meant to be modern, which I guess is a nod towards the massive success that Bridgerton is having,、um, but it just. Didn't work. It just was. It was really plodding. And no, visually, Lorcan, you're right. It was really. It wasn't in any. There was no gorgeous eye candy in this. Not from the men. I mean, Henry Golding, I suppose, is is fair enough. But um, yeah, I think we're all in. I think we're all in agreement that Cosmo Jarvis was some really bizarre casting, and if you're going to have a, a, a central romance with such little chemistry on either side, it's like, what am I even watching this for? I'm not. I'm more watching it for Richard E. Grant's jackets. Well, that leads me perfectly into the next question, Yazi.、Um, so, like Emma mentioned, Emma,、uh, I again was a very freshful, fresh, youthful take on the story.、Um, I'm a big fan of Kari Fukunaga's、uh, Jane Eyre, which is just stunningly gorgeous. Yeah.、Um, what was what was the What was brought to the table with this adaptation? What is the angle here?、Nothing. Why was this made? There's no angle.、Um, there, there is no angle. This is very lazily done. I mean, Persuasion. I, I have read it. I think it is. It's Jane Austen's last work, and I think it's one of her best works. And it is a very complex. You know, it's very well written. The characters are very well developed. It's more complex than I think people give it credit for. And this film. Is trying to tailor, I'm assuming, to the Bridgerton audience、um, by trying to make it modern. Fine, make it modern, but don't reduce what is the essence of persuasion. You don't throw this lazy language. Don't throw these undeveloped characters. Henry Golding, you mentioned Emma. It's very smarmily done. Like, and that character, yes, okay, yes, he's not the the、uh, the the. Good guy in the in the story, but the way it was written was just so one note. It was just so it completely reduces the the work, and I just think I I wanted to like it because I love persuasion the novel, and I just think they you can make things modern without reducing the source material, and I think this really reduces it in a way that's quite offensive to somebody like me that. Actually, really enjoys the novel.、Mm, totally true. I think they've gone the absolute backwards way around it. If you're hoping to get new audiences into these characters and these stories, they needed to have actually 
appreciated the brilliance of the original work and put some effort in and done a clueless or a 10 things I hate yeah. about you and actually reworked things like Taming of the Shrew and Emma into something brand new for new audiences showing that look these stories are timeless it's not boring period stuff this is boring period stuff or even um, the the recent David Copperfield, yeah. because obviously this, like Bridgerton, like David Copperfield, it, it, you know, it's colourblind casting, but it didn't. I, I don't know. The David Copperfield again was visually much fresher, and visually much, and and it just had a more entertaining feel about it, and it respected the source material. Whereas I, I don't think this is respecting the resource, the source material. Or right, Hugo, do you? How did you find the kind of modernisation? Did you find it as lazy as everyone else? Uh, yes, I did. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, like everyone else has said, there are examples where uh, modernising Austen has been effective, like um, like Emma um, last year and, and Clueless, and uh, the TV series Lost in Austen, which uh, mm. I enjoyed back in the day. Um, th there's clearly a formula for modernising Austen uh, and uh, sort of translating it to a modern audience. Uh, Persuasion does not adhere to that formula uh, particularly well. I confess I haven't read uh, Persuasion either, so um, I found the, um, the the flea bag asides, if, if you if you like, uh, they were okay to begin with because when uh, you're introduced to the characters, again I haven't read the novel, so it helped yeah. uh, introduce me to the characters. But I found it growingly tiresome um, and uh, smug and not really. It it didn't feel like I was able to see Anne's transformation as a character for myself because it was kind of explained to me. Mm. I nearly threw my coffee cup at the screen at the last shot. I was so annoyed by the last shot. It just it that that it, it undid any work that had come before. It's yeah, it's I, I I do think it's Richard E. Grant is always fantastic. I do think Dakota Johnson was surprisingly good. I her her accent cast, was fantastic. The whole cast are good, but. Cosmo Jarvis. Maybe not Cosmo Jarvis. Okay, but no, you know, you've got, like, I, I'm going to keep going back, but Henry Golding, again, you could have done a lot with Henry yeah. Golding in that film, and yeah. this, it's the scripting. The scripting is really off for me. Well, uh, it's streaming on Netflix, and it's a certificate PG, so it's, uh, if you're a fan of Jane Austen, maybe see what they've done to it, mutilated or adored it, um, but you can find out for yourself. Um, now, staying firmly in the 1800s, we're moving from Bath all the way over to Bristol, uh, to see the rise of a boxing, or should I say pugilism, uh, legend. Oi, Belcher! He thinks he can fight like his granddad. Go on, get you going! The only way to protect yourself is to fight. He ain't got it in him to do what you did. Give him time. He's just going to be a prize fighter. This is to Bill Ladies and gentlemen! You'll be a stronger, more experienced fighter just using your knocking. I'll put you at the top. Prize Fighter, The Life of Jem Belcher, as the title may suggest, tells the life of Jem Belcher and his quest to become prize fighting champion of England, inspired by a young age, uh, inspired at a young age by his bare knuckled grandfather, played by Russell Crowe, and encouraged by his trainer, played by Ray Winston. Uh, the apparently appropriately named Matt Hookings takes uh, center stage as the formidable athlete. Emma, I was expecting Rocky, and I was pleasantly surprised to find Rocky three. Uh, there's a, there's an existential <laughs> crisis. It's not it's not a regs riches story so much as an existential crisis. Um, did you find that emotionally satisfying? <laughs> 
I'm so sorry. When we were talking about films to do this week, um, I looked at this one, and having just finally got around to seeing Thor Love and Thunder, I am fully here for the reinvention of Russell Crowe as... Um, completely cheesy cameo cameo parts with with wandering accents so i greatly enjoyed the first 20 25 minutes of of this film with russell crowe after he 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 leaves us i mean that's not really a great spoiler he is jem's grandfather you know who gets him into boxing in the beginning i found i mean almost interchangeable i mean ray winston is just being ray winston i didn't i think the problem was i understand what you mean about this the, the idea that, that it is an existential crisis and, and there is more to this than just the rise and fall and rise again of Jen Belcher the boxer but I didn't feel that Matt Hookings who I think wrote this as well I didn't really think that he had the perhaps the, the acting chops he he, he, fight, he he boxes well um, but I didn't feel he had the acting chops having said that it was attractive looking mm. I thought I think again it, it felt very over processed in bits so there's very a glare good. to it yeah yeah it has know, a sheen to, to, to make it, it look old timey I suppose yeah yeah maybe it felt a bit like I was at an old timey theme park or something yeah. while I was watching it but um yeah yeah I mean I'm not necessarily an enormous fan of boxing movies anyway mm. but the, the, the scene the, the, the fights themselves seem pretty well choreographed and look pretty painful so well, I was going to say I thought, I thought the fight scenes were, were pretty legitimate looking yeah. um Yas did you did you find your blood pumping throughout any of it um no. Uh so I I mean I think I think it's fine. I don't I, I do like a good sports biopic. I'm not into boxing, but really good films about boxing, they they will keep me involved in a sport that I normally wouldn't pay much attention to. I thought this was quite formulaic, to be honest. It it followed a narrative. I actually read up on um Jen Belcher's life and I think that the having read up on it, they could have done a bit more with this film because yeah. actually his life is quite interesting. Um, <laughs> they could have made it a little bit more thrilling. Uh, for me, actually, Russell Crowe and Ray Winston's character, I was saying to Emma before, they were quite interchangeable to me. It's like when 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 Russell Crowe departs, just Ray Winston comes in and does the exact same thing. I think... I'm using this word a lot today, so apologies, everyone, but I just think it was kind of lazy. Um... But hey, I mean, if if you're into boxing, I think there is something there. But it, it just didn't work for me. Ash, right, do you think um, um, Ray Winston is a veteran boxer in real life, and obviously Russell Crowe is a famously played a boxer, at least one boxer? Did you f- feel like they added a sense of legitimacy to the plot? I think those characters could have been cast as anyone, really. Um, I did get very confused and it took me a little while to realise that Ray had taken over um, (laughs) from Russell at one point. Uh, Not to say they were bad in their roles, but I actually really liked Matt Hookings. It does make sense to me now I know that this is maybe his first big part, let alone his first leading part, so I liked the um, authenticity, kind of the naturalness. Um, The only real kind of message I could find in this that I thought was a little forced and a little twee and didn't really land was the kind of peasants teaching the upper classes sportsmanship um, and a love of a game. You don't do it just for bets, uh, which was a bit kind of... The rocky ending was a... I think they really served it to us on a plate because they thought we were stupid. It was all right. Does it... Because um, this we've, we've done quite a few Prime Originals now on the show. Does this stand out in the catalogue at all? No. no watch no. Don't Make Me Go instead. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I watched Don't Make Me Go instead. 
Yeah, no, it, it yeah, it doesn't. It, it is, it, it's a bit of, a, yeah, it was just a bit of a waste, really, I felt, with some fun moments in it, though. I mean, again, after Russell Crowe's sort of bizarre Greek accent in Thor, come, go for that, and then stay for his bizarre Bristolian accent in this one. <laughs> Okay, so a bit of a dub from our team here. I quite like it. So I think if you're into boxing movies, and I'll, I'll never tire of Russell Crowe and Ray Winston playing belligerent, <laughs> just <laughs> aggressive uh, dude bros. Uh, but it's uh, Certificate 15, and it's streaming on Prime Video. Finally, uh, Something Something Hard Drive, Something Something, and Agents Gone Rogue. What do you know about the Sierra program? Reckless mystery man you guys send in when you can officially send anyone else. The gray man. Lloyd. They got an urgent locate and destroy. That could be fun. The man's got some street cred. Director siblings Joe and Anthony Russo follow up their box office obliterating Avengers films with The Gray Man, an action film of international intrigue, a Netflix's self-proclaimed most expensive movie, starring Captain America himself, Chris Evans, and the as-yet-unclaimed-by-Marvel Ryan Gosling. When the highly skilled operative known only as Six, played by Gosling, uncovers dark secrets, it's up to the, uh, his unhinged former colleague, Evans, to cover them back up again and take out Six in the process. Along with the ride are Regé Jean Page, Billy Bob Thornton and Anna de Armas, hopefully with a bit more enthusiasm than her recent film Not So Fatale and Deepwater. Um, Yazi, how do you, how do not just the directors but the writers of so many mega blockbusters fare uh, when they don't have these pre-established archetypal heroes and villains to build off? Um, they fare okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to try not to be too negative about this one because it did hold my attention for the two hours running time but i i did watch it thinking it's a 200 million dollar movie what did they spend on clearly they spent on the car chases the big action seat the set pieces all of that you can see that and actually behind that there's not really much developed storytelling um which the marvel films actually you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say they do have that. You know, you you get to know these characters, you get to know their stories. You don't have this background with this film, so it is a bit like okay, fine. Um, I mean, <laughs> it is it is very much an action film with these huge set pieces. That's what you're in it for. If you're gonna watch this, that's that's all you want to watch it for. Basically, there's not much else beyond that. Um, and actually, thinking of the Marvel films, the one thing it does have in common, it's quite funny, actually, at the beginning of the film, um, Ryan Gosling chooses not to make a decision because of the collateral damage. You get 20 minutes into the film, and there is so much collateral damage because there's just cars and helicopters flying around everywhere, smashing into buildings, very in-keeping with the... Uh Avengers films. I totally felt that. I did feel that Joe and Anti Russo came from their Marvel background and have just made a film. And you're like, we haven't got um, aliens invading the Earth, guys. I yeah. don't see the we, need to blow up the entirety of Europe Prague. is gone. Europe <laughs> is entirely gone in this film. So. <laughs> yeah, by the end of it, visit now because it won't be there for long. <laughs> well, Hugo, surely if anyone can, the directors of Endgame can bring some spectacular action. Were you enthused by the action? Was it spectacular? 
No, um, I found the action far too frantic um, and chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, the camera work for all the fight scenes, which were clearly really well choreographed, mm-hmm. but because the camera work was so... Uh, I, I really wasn't on board with the editing. I couldn't really follow who'd thrown a punch, who'd been thrown across the room. Um, and that was disappointing because, like you say, they, they clearly devoted a lot of time to the, the action scenes, to the fight scenes, and I just I couldn't quite make out what was happening at times. Um, and throughout the film it just feels like it it wasn't plot driven it was driven by location shots it was driven by uh, action sequences a lot of car chases a lot of big in your face high octane action guns explosions um so yeah i despite all of that i wasn't gripped just because of the way that it was um portrayed on screen okay um alfie uh I felt like this was a script that someone could have written in their sleep. It feels very familiar. Um, did you think there was anything unique to the film? Um, well, the thing, the film, the way the film looks is uh, really colourful, and uh, compared to most action movies, in like you know Marvel and other action movies similar to this, I think this is a lot more visually appealing than anything I've seen. Um, I don't know where all the money went, but I think the story definitely didn't go to the story. It was more focused on the action scenes. Um, the story is pretty silly, I think, um, but the action scenes were definitely the best part. Okay. Well, another factor in the film is obviously the big cast, Emma. Um, was this film more than the sum of its parts? You got Gosling, Evans, and Adarmus as fed. No, and I felt, in fact, Chris Evans playing the baddie, Lloyd Hansen, I felt like they, they, they thought it was enough to cast Chris Evans so against type yes. as a baddie with a uh, moustache that they felt no need to actually write him any script or any background at all. I've just found out, literally, while we've been in the studio, that this is the first novel in a series of novels that was written in 2009. And apparently it was originally made meant to be done in 2016 by, by Christopher McQuarrie. Christopher McQuarrie. McHugh, as Tom and his friends like to call him. <laughs> but um, I'm not sure that could have been a whole different thing. No, this isn't. It, it, it is a good cast. And in fact, we watched this last night and James, my husband, who's a huge John Wick fan, was like, look, there you go. It's harder to make a John Wick film good than you think it is because this kind of is John Wick. So just send out all these assassins to kill your cool assassin, who is Ryan Gosling. So he's like the Keanu, Keanu reason is. And essentially, that should work because Ryan Gosling is pretty cool. But somehow... He's well, a bit of he's a bit of a void in this film. Yeah, he's he's a, and Anna de Armas. I feel like she I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where she goes after Knives Out and her breakout you know scene in Bond. Mm. She was also a little wasted. I I just couldn't I couldn't get over how much just how much they were blowing everything up and I couldn't work out what it was for for one hard drive. I was like, really, guys, come on. There was a lot of there were a lot of underdeveloped characters and when it got interesting, actually, Alfre Woodard, who I absolutely adore. They could have done so much more with that. I think she was criminally underused in this film. It's very clear to, I think, all of us that they just didn't care for the actual storytelling or the development of these characters. They... That was what? not what it was for. And if this is Roger John Page's best work after Bridgerton, please, God, do not let him be Bond. I think Ooh. Chris Evans is one of the best parts of the film outside the action. I think um, well, his character isn't very well written. But uh, Chris Evans, it looks like he's having a lot of fun with mm. the role. Like he's being like he's kind of hamming it up as this moustache twirling villain, and you know it's like infectious how much fun he's having. His dialogue's kind of like silly, but you know he's having like compared to Ryan Gosling, who I think is a bit boring in this film. He's definitely one of the more charismatic actors in the film. I Did think. it not feel, though, that maybe he felt like he was in a slightly different film? I, th- I kind of agree with you. It was a bit like Al Pacino and Jared Leto in House of, Go- House of Gucci. It just felt like he was making an entirely different film from the rest of them, yeah. Yeah, which, sounds, you know, isn't yeah. such a bad thing. Yeah, he does sound like a different character from a different film, but 
I think that film's probably more interesting, more fun than the film he's in. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, think, yeah. yeah. Well, Ash, do you think this is, like I say, it's $200 million. Do you think the, the money was on screen? Just, even with all this action, do you think it was actually... Present? Yeah, I can tell you why they spent it. Um, I really liked it. So I was taken by quite a few shots. The, the one I remember the most is the first time she plays a record and the house is dark and you see the house from the outside in the silence and you just see the gunfire. That was great. Final one with the sunrise was great. Your cinematographer did all of the Fast and the Furious films, which would account for the fury and the pace on screen. Your production designer is known for Blade Runner 2048, 1917 and Road to Perdition. So that's where all the money went. We have more than 100 stunt people working on this. The choreography was tight as I've ever seen in any Broadway to screen adaptation. And the money went because if the reason I don't like action films is because I'm waiting between the action sequences, which I enjoy watching for said choreography, and then you have to sit between kind of lazy storytelling, waiting for the next one. This is a real love letter to people who love action films because the action sequences come roughly every six minutes, which takes you, carries you all the way through, and rather than being kind of lazy and silly storytelling in between, I think they've chosen to keep it tight. It's a small gorgeous starry cast with a very simple central relationship between Gosling's character the young girl and Billy Bob Thornton with a handful of very sexy agents around the edges just to keep it ticking over from beginning to end and I love the nod to the Nagasaki Towers at the beginning with the big party that was so probably then the cut did you think then the budget also went on getting that cast around all of Europe I mean they must have it was probably like post-covid we're like we can go everywhere we're gonna go everywhere Would you recommend it, like Ash says, Action Junkies, would you, would you recommend it to anyone in particular? Yeah. No, yeah. I like action movies and I hated this, so I'm yeah, completely no, I'm, the opposite I'm, I'm from on the Ash. Same page, yeah, me too. Because yeah. it was just so stupidly written. So, it was just so stupid. So, I, anyway, but I, I enjoy your take on it, though, I, I think some people, I think some people, Ash, Ash has made some really good points there. I think some people will enjoy this because it is a spectacle. And if you want that, watch it. Well... You can decide for yourself or not. It's a, it's a, it's two hours. It's the Grey Man, uh, certificate fifteen, and streaming on Netflix. With great regret, that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, but please do join us on Saturday, the sixth of August, when we'll be talk- taking a non-stop journey on the bullet train with Brad Pitt and joining Olivia Coleman on a most unusual task and joyride. Uh, Till then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye to our critics. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Radio